Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedekes. And now get ready to think. Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show where we tackle impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. And man, there is no shortage of impossible questions out there right now. Open up your favorite uh, news website, or if you subscribe to the paper, open it up, look at the headlines, uh, read a book, listen to a podcast. There are, There is a, uh, a myriad of impossible questions circulating in the culture right now. But there are some questions that are these perennial questions that we ask. These, these questions that, you know, do they have answers? And if so, why do they keep getting asked? And one of those questions, and to be fair, it's one that we've addressed many times on the Think Podcast. One of those questions is, what is the relationship between science and Christian faith? Or you could just say science and religion or science and faith more generally. Now, uh, one of the things that I do is I follow the uh, the trends on Google there's, there's a website you can go to, trends.google.com, and you can see what's trending. Did you know that the phrase God, or science and God right now is at an all-time high? More people are searching for that at this particular moment than Google has ever tracked before. And if you want to talk about science and God and the relationship between science and God, uh, there are a few people that I can think of that would be more helpful to bring on than my guest today. And uh, he might not like me saying that, but my guest today, let's bring him on, is Lucas Giolis. Lucas, first of all, sick headband, or uh, uh, help me out, not a headband. Called a bandana. Bandana, right. <laughs> that's what that's called. That's the technical term. Sick yes. bandana, for those who aren't watching. Um, Thank you. Lucas has a certain uh, aesthetic about him where it's like, does this guy want to talk about science with me? Or is uh, he about to ride up on a Charlie Davidson and uh, get out his uh, his baseball bat and and, uh, and work me over? No, in all seriousness, um, Lucas is one of these guys that if you're on Facebook, I'll give you his credentials in a minute, but if you're on Facebook and you're into these discussions about science and faith and atheism and Christianity, Lucas is one of the guys you're going to see pop up or crop up with a video or um, a recommendation or an article saying, listen, if you read nothing else today, read this, you know, you're not a brain in a vat, that kind of thing. And you know what? Lucas doesn't just talk the talk. He walks the walk. He's got a bachelor of science from, uh, in physics, f- uh, uh, from the university of Minnesota and a bachelor of science in astrophysics from the university of Minnesota. He's got a master of arts in science and religion from Talbot school of theology. And get this, he works as a nuclear instrumentation and control systems engineer at a commercial nuclear power plant. So the brother knows what he's talking about <laughs> when when it comes to science. He also is a volunteer teacher and preacher at Grace Point Church, uh, my alma mater, so to speak, over in Naperville. And uh, he is on the book review team for Apologetics 315. And of course, he's also a proud and grateful husband to Kristen and father of two young children, uh, one of which whom was just recently born. Uh, so That's right. So this this is the brother who walks the walk, he talks the talk, he's a family man, he's a great man to talk. What do you think, Lucas? Is that a good enough introduction? That's too good of an introduction, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Setting the bar really high. Yeah, Bro, thank you, you for said, having me you on. Said, you said it high yourself, and I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad that you uh, have taken the time to talk to me. Um, Tell me, tell me about uh, how have things been going for you and your family with lockdown? Are you still locked down? Are you out and about? Um, how's it been going for you? Things have been going pretty well. Um, so my, my daughter was born about three months ago, right after the lockdown started, and she was born six weeks early. So we were kind of in this weird schedule because we were going back and forth from the NICU for a month. And that was more interruptive of our life than the actual lockdown from the pandemic. So since then, I've been working from home 
since my parental leave ended, my wife has yet to go back to work. So we've been adjusting pretty well. Um, obviously, new baby is probably the most difficult adjustment, more so than the lockdown itself. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense, of course. So, Lucas, uh, I wanted to talk to you today about, it's a topic that has come up a lot on our on our podcast, on our show, but it's the relationship between science and Christianity. Mm -hmm. And right now there seem to be three views that are popular. The first one is that Christianity is not scientific and that's important. The second one is Christianity is scientific and that's important. And then the third one is it doesn't matter whether Christianity is scientific, whether just because science doesn't matter or because they're uh, non-overlapping magisteria, that sort of thing. So just, just kicking things off right there, which view do you subscribe to? Put your cards on the table and then let's get into <laughs> why you believe that. Okay, so the, the view I subscribe to, you'll have to pin it into one of those categories, but I call it more of a qualified agreement model. So with that, basically, okay, starting point, God created the universe and God gave us the scriptures. Okay, so if we study God's creation and we study God's word and we do them correctly, we're going to converge upon truth, right? The, the truths in one are going to coincide with the truths in the other. Now, they're not perfectly overlapping, right? There's some theological truths that aren't strictly scientific. You know, the doctrine of the Trinity, that's not something you're testing in a lab. Um, but the doctrine of creation, the fact that the universe had beginning, that everything we see around us had beginning, that's something that seems to be both theologically relevant and scientifically relevant. So in some of these areas where they do overlap, if you do them correctly, they will agree with one another. That's kind of the, the general principle. Now, what that means to do them correctly is kind of where you get into the, the weeds a little bit. Is that sufficient to give you my starting point? Sure, yeah, yeah, I think so. Now, um, in terms of your credentials, man, I mean, multiple science degrees, um, you know, you're, you're working in, a, uh, in, a, in a, a nuclear power plant. So my question is, when you were a kid, did you always want to grow up to be a nerd or was that something that, something <laughs> that happened later? I'm sorry, terrible question. No, that, that, that's fair. I... Uh, borrowed without permission a physics textbook for my fifth grade classroom one time and uh, my teacher was gracious enough to let me keep it but pretty much yeah I, I fell in love with science when I was in high school took an astronomy class um, and from there uh, it just kind of spun out of control for lack of a better phrase have you ever been over to Fermilab in the yeah over in Batavia mm -hmm. for, actually for those who don't know Fermilab uh, long historic particle accelerator they did some pretty pretty amazing scientific things over there i figure a guy like you you're into <laughs> you know the, the nuclear uh realm of things what what's been your exposure over there well so with with fermilab that the particle accelerator i actually took uh i don't know if they still do this but when i was in high school they did a it was a saturday morning physics series so it was like nine weekends in a row where you would go, you'd attend a lecture for like a couple hours in the morning, and then you'd have mm -hmm. a tour in you know, around various areas of the facility. That so I did that my junior year of high school. Uh, oop! There we go. I did. I did the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> that is awesome. Very cool. <laughs> totally fascinating, man. Totally fascinating stuff. Um, so when we're talking about the relationship between science and uh christian faith why why do so many people say that there is a conflict between those two realms I, I think it has to do with the the popular media right if you watch shows who do you think talks or if you think about people talking about science and faith neil degrasse tyson is probably going to be the number one person that comes to mind just because he's one of the most famous physicists and he's asked about that all the time. And if you watched his Cosmos series, there was a lot of overlap where they sort of incorrectly addressed the interaction between science and the church throughout history. So those types of popular presentations, I think, are what has convinced a lot of the um, a lot of the population that there's this this conflict. 
I'll also add that there are a lot of weird things that we kind of grow up believing because it's just kind of assumed in our classes that simply not true. For example, um, I, I give a talk uh, that it's called Truths and Lies About Science and Faith. And one of the, the biggest ones that I talk about is the flat earth myth. The fact that really nobody in the history of Western thought ever really thought the earth was flat, yet everyone believes that it was this sort of big thing that everyone thought the earth was flat and that this was something perpetuated by the church. And it's th these sort of ridiculous notions that we kind of accept and they made their way into textbooks at the beginning of the 20th century. And sort of now I think some people are starting to come, you know, that's, it's starting to come to light that those are not actually accurate, but those sorts of things just kind of pop out everywhere. Okay. Okay. Now you said it's a ridiculous notion. We, we've got to circle back around on that. Um, <laughs> but I think we set the stage pretty well for, for where this conversation can go. I'm, uh, this is why I, I've been excited to have you on. How did you personally get into apologetics? Oh man. So I was probably one of those people that did apologetics before I knew what apologetics was. Right. I, uh, I was always argumentative <laughs> growing up. That was just kind of my thing. And so I, I, I wanted to know, I wanted to know answers to all the questions I had. Um, and so I would just get in discussions with people. Let's, let's call it discussions to be nice. <laughs> um, uh, they, they were arguments when I was a kid, but when I went away to college, I first became aware of apologetics from one of my friends, his name's Aaron, and he exposed me to uh, Ravi Zacharias, which quickly, that led me to John Lennox, and that led me to William Lane Craig, and then throughout co college, that's kind of where I was. Um, I really, it really hit me when I was in my, I think it was my second to last semester of college, and I was sitting at a table with the Let's see, it was five members, I think, of the campus atheist, skeptics, and humanist group. And I just kind of failed open on the, the, the questions. Like, they kept peddling me with questions, and I could not respond in time. Like, I, it's not that I didn't know the answers. It's just there was so much going on. I didn't, I didn't have it ready to go. So yeah. from that point forward, I sort of devoted myself to studying, and I picked up books, would read them as quickly as I could. Um, like all apologists, I have the obligatory library behind me in my in my screen. Yeah, um, and we got, so we don't, we normally don't take questions and comments till the end, but um, our mutual friend Larry Dolendi did <laughs> did say, "Who's got the better library?" So uh, I've I've seen pictures of your library, and uh, it is very impressive. So uh, I mean, do you have a telescope? No, I don't have a telescope. I do have a fake antique globe behind me, though. Let me move so you can see it. So, I, um, you know, you you've you've got your eyes on the stars. I guess I've got my eyes on the uh, the the nations. I don't know how that works. But, so this would be uh, a bad time to tell you that I have a globe as well. Oh, okay. I yield. I yield. <laughs> no, uh, you've got you've got in a very very impressive library. Um, so I will, I will yield that one, Larry. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll let the viewer decide. We'll let the viewer decide. Um, so, so, um, you got into apologetics, uh, after that encounter, who's, who's your current favorite apologist, Christian apologist that you haven't met yet? Oh, that I haven't met yet. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I never got a chance to meet Ravi Zacharias. Um, so that's unfortunate. Well, one day, but, um, I would love to meet John Lennox. I would love to meet John Lennox. John Lennox, the, uh, the, um, mathematician yes. who wrote, uh, has science buried God and, uh, just one of the foremost scientific minds out there right now talking mm -hmm. about these questions, the relationship between science and Christian faith and things like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I think he writes a book every two months now. I, I keep seeing <laughs> them come up. Is that right? Really? Well, so far this year, he, he's written one on the coronavirus, and he just came out yeah. with one on uh, artificial intelligence. Incredible. The man, the man is, um, <laughs> he's one of these guys, you get the feeling you could really ask him a question about anything, and he would, oh, um, in his great, I don't know what that accent is. Is it, is it Irish? Is it it's Northern? Irish. It's Irish? Yeah, in that great accent. Well, you know, in my last book, I I wrote on this, you know, and then give you his his thesis. Um, Lucas, when you are 
when you're participating in apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith, mm-hmm. is your goal primarily to convince unbelievers or is it to strengthen believers? Well, I mean, it, it depends on who I'm talking to. I think apologetics, I'm, I view myself predominantly as an equipper. So I am most in my element when I am speaking to fellow Christians, equipping them with the tools that they need to be more effective in their faith. So that's where I, I would say that's where my strengths lie, but that, that doesn't mean I shy away from having conversations with unbelievers and trying to convince them. That's, I'm not, I don't, I don't know if I do that as often, but um, it's not like an either or thing. Yeah, no, that, that makes good sense. Um, and you think about somebody like, like a Ravi Zacharias, you know, or, or a John Lennox. I mean, there's, there's definitely the interplay with non-believers, but how much of those two guys done to strengthen the church in our, our own faith in terms of, you know, just reminding us, look, not only are you not crazy for your Christian belief, but there's actually very good science behind this. There's, it, it actually, um, actually does comport with, with, uh, the way the world actually is and scientific discovery. So let's get into the meat of it here, Lucas. All right. What, what do you feel is the best or what do you believe or, or think is the best scientific evidence for Christianity? Well, I mean, the argument from science itself, I, I guess, is the is the is the best way to put it. I mean, okay. we could talk about we could talk about different arguments like the fine tuning of the universe and the you know the Big Bang, whatever Big Bang cosmology, origin of the universe, these sorts of things, and that that's great. I think strict hard science that feeds into different premises and philosophical arguments, right? That's kind of how the science feeds into it in sort of an evidential sense, but taking it more a step back in a more meta sense, it's the philosophy of science and looking at what does science need to actually function? I, some people disagree, but I actually believe that when we do science, we are at least converging upon some sort of truth that when we practice science and we say, Hey, we discovered gravitational waves. We're not just saying, Oh, we have this make believe thing that helps us do other science we're actually saying there's a real phenomenon known as gravitational waves that we've detected. And in order for that to be the case, we need certain things to be true about the universe. The universe needs to be ordered. It needs to have a logical structure to it. But beyond that, we need to, ha- we need to be creatures that have the capability to make observations and engage in a legitimate process of deliberation to reach conclusions. And neither of those things can you really get on any sort of worldview that doesn't include God. Okay, yeah, flesh that out, man. Why not? Because, you know, um, <laughs> these th- that's the kind of argument that as a presuppositionalist, I make all the time. And I know you're not coming from that same methodology, but what you're saying right now, I'm like, yes and amen. <laughs> so flesh that out. Why, why do you say that? And uh, uh, why do you think that that's the case? Well, I mean, so I'm a, I guess part of this comes down to if you, if you believe if you believe things need explanations, right? If you take a look at the universe and you see that the universe is structured, it, you know, some might say it's a brute fact or something where it just doesn't have an explanation. But to me, I don't see that as a valid option. I think you have a a thing that exists, this universe, and it exists in a certain way. And it's always relevant to ask, why is it the way it is? And without any sort of intentional agent, you you can't explain the structure of the universe, or at least you can't explain why it's consistent, right? It just becomes, it just is. And with, with God, with an agent, you at least have something that can explain why the universe is structured. It has a structure because someone gave it structure. Do you think... Um... Why do you have a problem with the universe just being there as a brute fact? Do you think that we are designed to seek explanations for for why things are the way they are? Do you think that there's something inherent in what it means to be human to do that kind of inquiry? Yeah, I, I actually do. Um, in 
in the talk that I give on truths and lies, the one of the things I, I add on to this is that human beings need to have an inquisitive nature. So in order to do science, you need to have an inquisitive nature. And part of part of being relational beings, I think, gives us that inquisitive nature. And Christian theology really, really cements that into who we are. We are relational. And that that I believe gives us sort of a starting point for asking the types of questions, uh, you know, the, well, okay, not just am I here, but why am I here? Does that make sense? It does. The why question, though, is famously not one of those questions that can be answered by science, though. Or, or do you believe that it is? I, I don't think, well, the why question can't be strictly answered by science, but science is sort of this applied philosophy. It, it's, a, it's a narrowed scope. When we practice science, we are engaging in some sort of intellectual inquiry. So the existence of science itself, you're saying, basically requires, how would you phrase it? God's existence, Christian truth, biblical truth claims, what, if you were to if you were to boil all that down into it, you know, one or two phrases, which I know maybe I'm asking you to do the impossible here. Sure. But if someone were to say, Lucas, I've got 15 seconds on the elevator here. I'm getting off next floor. I'm about to go have a conversation with my atheist friend. Uh, tell me again, what's that? What's that argument from science? How does the existence of science prove the existence of God? How, what, what do right. you tell them? So in order for science to actually be an endeavor that gets us at truth, we need to have the universe has to be structured by a personal agent. And as human beings engaging in science, we need to be imaged after that personal agent. And so uh, why do we need to be imaged after the personal agent? Right. So that, that has to do with this idea of uh, engaging in a legitimate process of deliberation. We need to be rational okay. creatures because mm -hmm. without, without personal agency, if the world is just this material mess, you have a bunch of electrons, protons, really it's just physical matter and it's just rearranged in different ways. Well, then the way your brain works is no different than the way a calculator works. You mm. press two plus two on a calculator and hit the equals button. The calculator doesn't think. It doesn't say, okay, what is two? What is this plus symbol? What is, you know, two again? And then what does this equals operator mean? It just spits out an answer because the structure of the calculator necessitates that given those inputs, it'll give you a certain output. Well, your brain is effectively no different. Your brain is just physical matter rearranged in a different way. It receives inputs, spits out outputs. But if all you are is matter, then you have no you have no way to ground a legitimate process of deliberation where you weigh the options and you consider, mm. okay, is this conclusion more rational than this conclusion? Your whatever conclusion you reach ends up just being necessitated. And if you don't want, if you don't think physics gets you all the way to determinism, well, your only other option is chaos. And in neither case, is there a you actually controlling how you get from the inputs to the outputs? Now, the only way to get agency in human beings is if what, what I call the fundamental nature of reality itself is an agent. Because w whatever we build in this universe, whatever is built itself has to come from whatever the foundation is. And agency is not the type of thing that you can get from non-agency. Now, how do you know that agency can't arrive from non-agency? Or is that are you just taking that as a axiomatic principle, a starting point. You, you could take it as axiomatic. You could also take it sort of evidentially. I mean, anything we build is going to be, any, any attempt at sort of artificial intelligence that we build, it all comes down to the programming. There's no agent behind it controlling it. It's just a computer program. So when, by rearranging matter, I guess you could put it one way, the unanimous, you know, un the evidence from our experiences is unanimous that rearranging physical matter does not give you agency. So if you want to claim that rearranging physical matter from an, or, you know, will bring you agency from an evidential perspective, you have to provide something. Now, some people will go and say, well, science can't do this yet. Science, you know, 
that is i love that I that's love that. a talk I about mean, blind faith sorry well, go on it, i mean you're right it's it's a naturalism of the gaps fallacy they, they talk about god of the gaps fallacies all the time you know they on the other side of this but really anytime someone says well science hasn't explained this yet it's a naturalism of the gaps fallacy it's assuming that it's something science can explain but when all evidence suggests that merely rearranging matter just produces something akin to a calculator where there's no personal agency, that seems like a pretty unwarranted assumption. You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up and I'm glad you also talked about um, artificial intelligence because this is one of the big debates right now in terms of the ethics of artificial intelligence, specifically with regard to self-driving cars. The car you know, Tesla or Google or whoever's making these cars has to equip the car to be able to make pseudo ethical decisions. In other words, if there is a, a person on the road and the car is driving along a mountainside road with no railing, does the car, uh, and let's say uh, it's impossible to stop. Okay. The road is slippery. You know, imagine a worst case scenario. Uh, the car can't stop and the only options are ramming the person in front of you or steering off the edge of the cliff. The car doesn't have an ethical <clears throat> compass of its own. All it can do is whatever it was programmed by its engineers and whoever's putting, putting that data into it, um, you know, those counterfactuals into it. All it can do is what it's been programmed to do. So it's like, if we are just a product of naturalism, we as human entities can only do we only have what's been put into us. So if the, if the, uh, the nature, I don't want to, uh, mangle the phrase you use, but I really liked it. It's like the nature of, uh, it was, it was something along the lines of metaphysics, but you didn't say metaphysics, like the actual nature of the world or the, the fundamental nature of reality. That's it. The fundamental nature of reality. If it's impersonal, then we're just the product of impersonal forces. And, and all we have is what's been put into us. And if that's a mm -hmm. random process, a determinative whether it's either chaotic and random or it's determinative, we are either therefore random or just deterministic. There is no actual agency there because there's no agency that went into our makeup, right? There's no agency that that could input agency into us. Is that is that sort of a fair yeah. uh, restatement of what you're saying? Yeah. So yeah, it's like agency isn't the type of thing that you can that you can get. Um, from non-agency. Now, think of it, the, the example I've used before is, it's like all we have is red bricks, agency is a blue wall. It doesn't matter how you mm. rearrange the red bricks, bricks, you will never get a blue wall. That's good. That's just not gonna happen. That's good. And, and that's where when it seems to be that agency is that type of thing. And from, from an evidential standpoint, I don't, I don't need to, like, I don't need to have any sort of, anything approaching 100% certainty of this. That's like all my experience. Well, I mean, very little of what I consider to be knowledge do I have 100% certainty on. Um, certainty is sort of a psychological state, not a state that applies to or it's it's not really relevant to the truth of something in any in all cases. I mean, I know people have been certain of things that are wrong. I've been certain of something that that's been wrong. Before. So you can be certain of something without actually knowing it. You can be very well convinced right. without having the the technical definition of knowledge. With right. To it. Well, and for me, it's like I could consider I know something to be true with, say, I have, you know, well, 75% of the evidence indicates this. I'm going to go with that because it's the most reasonable conclusion. So for someone to come up and tell me, well, how do you know for sure that there's no way to get agency from non-agency? I'll say, look everything we've done before, everything we've done to rearrange matter has failed to produce agency. And the basic foundations of how science works, the, you know, how uh, structuring matter works, it doesn't, there's nothing intrinsically obvious about saying I can rearrange matter in this way and get agency. There's nothing on the table to do that. So why wouldn't I be within my rights to say, agency needs to come from an agent. Yeah, that that's a good point. It's like if you if you want to make that case and you believe in something like evidence, you need to be able to give some evidence for that and what you're saying is as far as we can see, there is no evidence for that. 
and it's not even just that it's you could take a look at some of the philosophical arguments for the soul like that demonstrate that we cannot be identical to our physical bodies man i really want to go down that rabbit trail with you <laughs> i really do okay why let's let's do it man let's jump in kind of threw that out there didn't i no well you did and i know that i've seen enough of your posts on facebook to know uh you you know you're you're not you're obviously not a materialist you you do believe we have a soul you believe the mind is distinct from the brain you're not right. merely a brain uh how could you possibly establish something like that from science lucas i mean that's that's a religious question isn't it how can you say that you're a man of science Mm -hmm. How can you, as a man of science, believe in something immaterial and, and you know, sort of uh, mystical like the soul? Well, I mean, so there are a couple of things with that. One, the, the philosophical arguments, I think, are very convincing in that if you start with what's known as Leibniz's law of identity, that basically says if you have two things, in order for them to be identical, then anything that is true of one has to be true of the other. Excuse me. Um, okay. When you think about the difference between people always talk about, oh, well, science proves that if you have some sort of experience, if you have some sort of thought, it correlates to this brain chemistry, some some neurotransmitters firing in your brain. And they say, well, that there we go. That proves that they are the same. We can do pretty accurate brain mapping of experiences and beliefs and thoughts to uh, reactions in the brain. The problem is, one, that's not actually true. Um, you, you can kind of get some general brain mapping of, okay, well, maybe these types of experiences are in this region of the brain, but the same experience doesn't show up identically and, or the same thought doesn't show up identically in repeated tests with the same person. And they certainly don't show up identically in repeated or tests or comparing tests between different people. So to say that the experience of say tasting a banana is identical to the firing of the neurotransmitters in your brain, or I guess we'll say the sensation of tasting a banana is identical to the firing of neurotransmitters in your brain. Well, in whose brain, my brain or your brain? Cause the, mm. those, those firings are going to look different. And there's also the problem of, uh, if you, and, or if you're performing a test on me, right, then, the only way you know what is going on in my brain is because I tell you what I'm thinking about at that time or what I'm experiencing at that time. The whole process of brain mapping relies on first person experience hmm. and the per individual relaying that first person experience. Nobody running a test has access to that information. And so scientifically, in terms of the actual experiential correct. information, I can look at a map of your brain and find out what's going on mm -hmm. chemically or, or neurobiologically, but that's, you're saying that's not the same thing as the actual first person experience, right? So that is at most giving you a correlation and all a correlation gives you is saying, well, when a core, so pure materialism, say if we're going to do some sort of, or maybe not pure materialism, but some sort of the mind emerges from the brain as just it's just a consequence of the physical the physical matter if we start there or we start with there's a soul that interacts with the brain mere correlation of oh someone's experiencing tasting a banana and this neuron fired that cannot distinguish between those two proposals so to say that the, the brain mapping proves that we're just our brain and we're, there's no mind simply just doesn't understand how evidence works wow now if you take it a step further what is a thought what is an experience you know you can think of i can tell you to think about a cheeseburger right now hold right? on man i gotta i gotta pause you right there to make sure i understand okay okay so so if i understand what you're saying you're saying the very fact that we can map a correlation between someone's firsthand account of their experience and the neurobiological response in their brain, according to the brain mapping, the very fact that we can see a correlation there is actually that that accords with both views, the view, mm -hmm. the view that we are just a brain and the view that we also are a soul that we're, we're, we're uh, dualistic. We have mm -hmm. soul and body. So the very fact that we can map the brain is not evidence that we are merely a brain. So that, that whole Correct. idea really just, it's kind of circular, isn't it? Because it assumes its own conclusion. Right. Look, we're, we're, 
we're purely physical, we're purely biological. And look, we know that because of this data, which we're interpreting through the, the lens of pure uh, materialism anyway. That, I didn't say that clearly, but, but it, what you're saying is it doesn't, it's not, it's not evidence one way or the other. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So, and that, that's the best the materialist has. Like, we'll just throw that out there. That is what their argument is that everything we know about, we, you know, everything we know about how we experience things shows up on our brain or, you know, on a brain map. That is the argument for materialism. But if you take it a step further, um, and actually I'll, I'm stick on this a little bit longer. There's research, uh, Jeffrey Schwartz in his book, The Mind and the Brain, he did OCD research, which demonstrates that over time, the mere process of thinking about something, so what he calls the mental force, can produce physical changes in the brain over time. Right. So that's, that piece of evidence seems to actually imply that the thoughts we have can change the physical structure of the brain over time. Um, which which even points towards not only dualism, but it points to a dominance of the mind over the brain. Correct. Correct. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. But if you want to say, get to the point of identity, right? A thought, can a thought even in principle be identical to a, you know, to your neurotransmitters firing? Well, there's this concept of intentionality. So if I ask you to think about the an intentionality, meaning the aboutness or ofness of something, if I ask you to think about a cheeseburger, you can think about a cheeseburger. You know what it means to think about a cheeseburger. But to say that neurotransmitter is about a cheeseburger makes right. absolutely no sense whatsoever. Right. That sort of claim cannot be true. It, it you can describe states your mental states using or in intentionality, right? You can have mental states that are intentional. You cannot have physical states that are intentional in that sense. So that is one thing that is true about mental states that is false about physical states. And given even one thing that is true about mental states that is false about physical states, it stands to reason that the mind cannot be identical to the brain. Wow. So, and that, and that goes back to Leibniz's rule of, tell me again, Leibniz's uh, rule of the identity? law, the law of identity, or the law of um, the law of I think it's the law of indiscernibility of identicals. Okay. Yeah, the law of indiscernibility of identicals. Okay, and that's I mean, there's obviously there's the law of logic, the law of of, uh, of identity, which mm -hmm. says A is A, and you know, which is a very shorthand way of saying two if two things are the same, they have to be identical in every way, right. or else they're not. Um, well, that's, that's very, uh, that's very cool, man. So this is exactly, this is why I wanted to have you on because that, that is solid gold. People are watching right now or f the folks who are listening later on the podcast. I know that's going to be helpful. <laughs> so thank you for laying that out. Thank you for, for explaining that. Um, I, I, if you're okay with it, I've got some more questions I can ask, but we're nearing the point of the show where it'd be a good time to ask some listener some viewer questions are you okay with that can i can i do fire some at you okay now if you um if there's any of these that you'd prefer not to answer no problem at all just hey you know pass or whatever there's no shame in that whether it's outside your your field mm -hmm. of expertise or or you just don't feel like answering it or, or whatever um that's perfectly fine uh you reserve that right so the first question is from larry dolendi again and he says so determinism is void of opinion or deliberation. What do you, what do you, what's your response to that? So, I mean, I guess it depends on how you define opinion, right? If you define opinion as just whatever it is a person believes about something that they do have their position on something. You know, someone's going to say, I think, you know, I think something's true versus something being false. Or I think, you know, I think George Washington was the best president we've ever had. And it's just been downhill since then. Right. You could you could say that that's an opinion and you have that whether determinism is true or false. The question is, can that opinion be rational in any sense? And if determinism is true, there's no sense in which that opinion can be rational. So if you're a determinist, well, then by definition, you everything you believe is irrational. Because 
you can't get from determinism to rationality. Right. You, you, rationality implies some sort of correct. Uh, yeah. You're engaging in this process of deliberation. You're weighing the options and you're reasoning to a conclusion. Well, that process doesn't exist on uh, determinism. Right. It's just okay. processing through the circuits. Every, every conclusion you come to is one that you necessarily arrive at. Right. Irrespective you, well, you, of... You have no control over it. You have no control. And, and it really says nothing about the truth or falsity of whatever the, the claim is. Correct. Okay. Okay, so that's good. Um, Larry, if that answered your question or not, if you're still watching, um, let us know. Uh, the next question is from Nate Werner, who says, how does Lucas respond to an atheist saying any appeal to the miraculous is an appeal to magic? I mean, I, I kind of chuckle at that because obviously the, the, uh, the relationship between the miraculous and magic is meant to be silly, right? It's meant to be this sort of farcical attempt at, I wouldn't say mocking us, but really that's what it is, right? Um, I guess, why, right? So if someone's going to say it's, okay, let's collect ourselves on this. When someone <laughs> says it's magic, they're assuming magic is fictitious. Magic is just something you go, you see a magician do a trick, but really there's no such thing as magic. Right. So if they're going to make this comparison, then what they are saying, in effect, is that the miraculous is impossible. But what does that actually mean? Well, if you're going to say the miraculous is impossible, at a minimum, you have to say that God does not exist. So any of those people who consider themselves to be weak atheists who say that, oh, I don't say that God doesn't exist, I just say I'm not convinced that God does exist, this sort of comparison is off the table because in order to make the comparison, you have to say that the miraculous is fictitious or it's mm. like something that we know to be fictitious. So God must be fictitious in order for that analogy to hold. Um, and even if God does exist, then they'd have to go ahead, you know, even if they say, well, maybe God exists, but God wouldn't interact with the universe, they'd have to argue that, or they'd have to argue that it would be some sort of impossibility of him interacting. There are all sorts of these burdens that the atheist just cannot bear if they want to go ahead and say the the miraculous is impossible and that's effectively what this sort of argument is so it's 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 starting with something that we all agree is kind of silly kind of absurd you know magic mm -hmm. you, you know what's kind of cool though um i heard uh, there's a there's a pastor that i um have read some of his oh no i don't know if i'm frozen or you're frozen are you still there? Yeah, I'm there. Can you hear me? I can hear you. It looks like we just lost connection. That was on my end for a second. But okay. um, if you can still hear me. So the way I've heard it compared is this, and the credit goes to, to Doug Wilson on this. It's like, um, if you, uh, you know, try, we say we don't believe in magic, but we believe in miracles. But then you read, read the gospels. S Try explaining to your six-year-old that Jesus turning water into wine is not magic. I, that's pretty magical. You know what I mean? Right. Like Jesus feeding 5,000 people. So it's like, well, if you want to call it magic, okay. That just means that God can do magic. But that's just another word for miracle. If we're right. saying magic is absurd and impossible, like you just said, well, no, God's not absurd. God's not impossible. But if all we're saying is that the creator of the laws of physics, the laws of, of chemistry and biology can suspend those laws when he chooses to for his own purposes. Well, you can call that miracles, magic, or, or whatever you want to call it. It's just God doing that. The Bible calls them signs and wonders. Right. You know, so if you're, it all depends on how you define things. So right. I kind of like the idea that, yeah, Jesus did magic, but it was real magic. <laughs> and it's, you know, right. we, we call them miracles. We call them signs and wonders. But uh, one thing we can't call them is impossible if God exists. So everything right. really does hinge on that, right? And, and another route you could take is simply say, okay, well, have you interacted with the work of someone like Craig Keener, who mm. has a two-volume set of cataloging miracle accounts, modern-day miracle accounts? And they're, they're, you know, with various degrees of attestation. But, I mean, to say that this assumption that the miraculous is sort of unanimously considered to be absurd, well, 
that's not actually true when you actually look at how right. common claims to the miraculous are. Now, those may not be true claims in every case, but you can't start from this basis that it is absurd. Um, so Craig Keener miracles, I, I don't, I don't I actually, I haven't read through those texts, but I've had some interaction with Keener on this. And it, I mean, he, the man is, as far as cataloging information and being a thorough scholar, there, there's no one better than that. Um, but even on just the process of the miraculous, I have to throw this out there because it's a book I read earlier this year. It's called uh, Divine Action Determinism and the Laws of Nature. It's uh, by Jeffrey Kapersky, and it is one of the most phenomenal reads I've ever read. If you want to buy the hardcover version, it's like 155 bucks, but it might still be free on Kindle. So there's that. Oh, wow. That's how I read okay. it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but great. he actually goes through this. It's super rich, super philosophical, and super scientific. So... Tell us the name of that book one more time. Divine Action, Determinism, and the Laws of Nature. Okay, good. Love it. That was um, a long answer to that question. Sorry. No, that not, don't be. That, that's, that's why we're having yachts. You can give those good long answers. <laughs> um, another great book is this. It's called Chance and the Sovereignty of God. It talks about God's, uh, God's control and authority. This one's by Vern Poitras. Um, I'm about maybe six-tenths of the way through. Um, but it, it's a uh, it, similar kind of thesis, you know, the sovereignty of God over things like the laws of nature, even he focuses more on probability. Um, but, uh, but really, really fascinating stuff. So the, um, the comments we're getting here, some of which are responding to what you're saying and then others of which are asking new questions, but, but they are rolling in. Um, Donna Flenke is asking, uh, or this is more of a comment. Well, that also goes into nature versus nurture. This is back when you were talking about sort of the subjectivity of first person experience. Um, not everyone has the same experiences that create the neural branches in each person's brain. And then she follows up by saying, it also, uh, she says, Dr. Carolyn Leaf, Caroline Leaf has some good research on that too. You can rewire your brain from intentional thoughts. Have you have you heard of anything like that before? Um, I'm not familiar with uh, with Dr. Leaf, but that sounds to be very similar with the Jeffrey Schwartz's research in OCD patients. Okay, yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, probably Which just, much just goes to show you it's not just like one crackpot, you know, theorist out there. It's actually right. multiply attested by different scientists working out there. I'm assuming Caroline Leaf is a scientist. Yeah, well, and, and that's that's really what's important when we're dealing with science is it has to be repeatable, it has to be testable, you know. But that's one of the benefits of peer review is we can let's submit this to many different thinkers, many different uh, scholars and researchers in this area and see if they would um, agree that this is sensible. Um, yeah. It also reminds me of uh, something that I've mentioned before, which is the placebo effect. You know, there's, there's, you can take a sugar pill and if you believe you're taking medicine, it actually has a, a chemical biological effect on your body, Yeah, which shouldn't be the case if, uh, if we are just brains and our thinking is just the product of chemical reactions. That's uh, true. <laughs> Larry says, and by the way, if you had something to add to that, yeah, please, please jump no, in. I'm good. Uh, Larry, Larry, satisfied with your answer? That's good. Um, Nate Warner pops uh, pops up to say it means they're begging the question. I think in terms of you know is the magic miraculous. right? Magic and the miraculous. If magic is impossible, um, Donna Flenke says, can we circle back around to flat Earth? Oh boy. Uh, okay, am I going to anger some people here? You know, you know. Let's 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 make that another podcast episode. Okay. Um, um, I, I will say just clarification. My statement earlier, the the what I would say, what I was saying was ridiculous. Was the position that um, the church sort of perpetuated this idea that the Earth right, was flat? Right. You can find in writings from uh, Augustine to Aquinas specific mentions of the roundness of the Earth. So it was it was never a. a christian thought in the church about the flat earth yeah that's good okay now you mentioned neil degrasse tyson a little bit here mm -hmm. uh, a little bit earlier and he's a guy that 
I've had some interaction with his ideas, even on this podcast. One of the quotes that he's made, it's kind of a famous quote, is he says, the great thing about science is that it works whether you believe in it or not. It's true no matter what. And I kind of mangled that quote a little bit. But Lucas, if science works, why do we need God? Why put, doesn't Occam's razor require us to go with the least complicated explanation for things. So if we're saying science works, scientific inquiry gives us truth, why do we need to put God into the mix? Why can't we just say, let's just do science and science can be neutral territory. Uh, we don't need a God or many gods or you know which God. It's just, let's just be rational and scientific about this. How, how do you respond to that? Well, so I guess two two things. One, are are you asking about why would we need to do, you know, bring God into the mix when doing science or why do we need to bring God into the mix at all? Because if it's the la- the, la- the latter, that's kind of the whole point of the discussion is if you want if you want science at all, God has to be in the mix because God is the only way to explain why science would work in the first place. Love it. Because without God, you don't have a, a, an explanation for the structure of the universe and you don't have a means by which to get personal agents who can practice science. So that sort of explains why we need God, because scientific truth is not exhaustive truth. So you need, I mean, so there are truths that are outside of science, and and part of that is the justification for science, and that's where God comes in in that respect. If you were asking about sort of why would we need to bring God into the mix when practicing science, so that could be um, sort of, responding to methodological naturalism, um, this this claim that you can practice science without appealing to God, even if you believe in God, right? It's just kind of saying, well, when we do science, we only appeal to naturalistic explanations. We don't appeal to God. Well, I I can, I mean, I see that. I see why a lot of people say that, like, oh, well, you just don't bring God into the lab with you. And I, I think a lot of Christians who practice science go about it that way. And Maybe that works a lot of the time, but from a philosophical level, let's think about what, what you're saying. If science, if, if science is a process and you say, when we do science, we get to truth. We get a true, a true answer, right? And then you go ahead and say, well, if we want to practice science, we cannot appeal to God as the explanation. Well, then you're left with a couple of alternatives. Either, really, well, you're only left with one alternative there. And that alternative is God can't exist. So if you actually, sure, methodological naturalism itself does not, it's not the same thing as saying God doesn't exist, but methodological naturalism in conjunction with a belief that science gets us to true answers entails metaphysical naturalism. So it entails that God doesn't exist. So as a Christian, we should be pretty concerned about any time we want to say, well, science gets us to truth. And we want to say that, um, we can only appeal to naturalistic explanations. It very well may, may be the case just on principle that God is the explanation for something. Um, and this is why, like, if you take an intelligent design perspective, there's no reason why the violation of methodological naturalism should invalidate from being scientific unless you start with the presupposition that God does not exist. Okay. okay. That was a long so- answer again. No, that, that's, that's really good. You know, something that strikes me about n- methodological naturalism is it assumes you know the way the world is supposed to work, doesn't it? Sans God, without God. Mm-hmm. It, assumes, it assumes that there are these laws that are consistent and reliable over time th- and that you know that those laws and principles will continue on into the future. And what I what I hear you saying, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, is that that very assumption that induction is possible, that the future will be like the past, that makes good sense if you start from the belief that God exists. Because mm-hmm. if God exists, of course, the laws of physics will continue on into the future. Right. God is faithful, right? Like the Bible tells us this. The Bible might not lay out, the Bible doesn't lay out a lot of these scientific principles, but it lays out a good basis for thinking that we can uncover these principles. Right. And it it never even goes out and says, hey, 
do science, you can trust it. But the way the Bible talks about creation and the way the Bible instructs people to view creation seems to me to strongly indicate that, yeah, we can learn about creation by studying it, you know, and we can learn about it reliably. I mean, not, not infallibly, right? Because we aren't, you know, we're not infallible, but we can learn about the universe by looking at it. So let me ask you a hard question. Are you sure you're not a presuppositionalist? Because Lucas, what you're saying <laughs> right now, dude, I'm, I'm a hundred percent on board. I mean, I, I'm with you. I, I, this is why I love having these discussions because, uh, we find out there's a lot more overlap in these different schools of thought. Mm -hmm. So just for people who aren't aware, um, what, something that you told me in our Facebook conversation months ago was that you're more of an evidentialist slash classicalist mm -hmm. apologist, right? So you're, you are appealing more to evidences, um, philosophical argumentation, whereas uh, as a presuppositionalist, I'm appealing more to the preconditions for knowledge. So when mm -hmm. I talk about science, this is something that I talk about a lot. Is, and this is one of the topics we've addressed most on our show is science and faith. It's, look, if you believe that the scientific method is something that's valid, you have to start with Christian presuppositions in order to believe that. You might be doing it tacitly. You might not be doing it overtly. Mm -hmm. But the way you're acting, the way that you are progressing with experimentation shows you believe the universe is regular, that the laws of... Mm -hmm of logic and of mathematics and science are going to persist into the future. And those are all in perfect accordance with Christianity. So, so am I sure I'm not a presuppositionalist? Um, from the way I understand presuppositionalism in, in the sense of needing to, in the sense of needing to start with believing in God in order to progress any further in sort of a, a conversation, I, I, I guess I, I think people can have can know things to be true whether or not they believe in God. I think that's a, more of a function of how God has designed us, you know, irrespective of what beliefs we currently hold at any given point. Um, and I also think people can hold beliefs that are themselves inconsistent because they don't they're not cognizant of the inconsistencies. Right. So someone can say, "Okay, I believe God doesn't exist," <clears throat> um, and still say, I believe science, you know, the universe is structured. I believe we have reliable means to study the universe and that those sorts of things. They can believe all of those things. And I can be, I can accept that they believe all of those things. It's just, they don't recognize the inconsistency. Um, right. I don't necessarily think they, they have to be like actively suppressing that knowledge. I think they just sometimes might not recognize it. So they're, they, what do you think, that they're suppressing it um, subconsciously, unconsciously? Is there, do you still think that there's a suppression going on? Sometimes, and, and maybe they, sometimes I just think they might not be aware of it. So they, they, just, they just don't recognize the implications of the statements they're making. Okay. And, and they, they might not see the, the, the disjoint, uh, mm -hmm. the, the disconnection there. And yeah. so I guess the, the divide that I find is a lot of times when, when I watch presuppositionalists engage, they sort of get hung up on this, like, well, you need to believe. Or, so, okay, so we'll start with, okay, when we start with God, God has to exist in order for any of us to have any sort of knowledge whatsoever. But I see a lot of presuppositionalists kind of make the jump to saying, well, you need to believe God exists in order to, you know, believe anything or in order to be knowledgeable about anything else or in order to have knowledge. And that's the jump I can't make because whether or not we can know things, I think is more about our anthropology, if you will, how God has made us sure. and less about what our you know, epistemic starting point is. Because most people, you walk down the street and you ask an everyday person what their epistemic starting point is. 99 people will just walk away from you right. <laughs> and that one person will be talking to you for three and a half hours. Right, um, right. But it, you're not, most people don't think about those things. So mm -hmm. uh, they, we can become justified in believing certain things based on um, 
other things that we believe in close that are in close proximity to that. And the relevance, I think, in a sort of the immediate justification sort of dissipates as you go further and further back explanatorily. Um, okay, so, yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I guess I'll just to, to wrap that up. Someone can believe that two plus two is four because they understand how math works. They don't need to have any sort of belief about whether or not God exists in order to know that when they're doing math and they have these rules that two plus two equals four and they can be justified in their knowledge that two plus two equals four, even if they don't have any beliefs about God existing. So as, as a pre-supper, I agree with that a hundred percent. And I, I like what you said earlier about um, pointing out to them the inconsistencies they might not even be aware of. That's how I, I can't speak for all presuppositionalists, um, but that's how I view the apologetic encounter. It's, it's comparing the two systems. So, okay, we both agree science works. We both agree mm -hmm. two plus two is four. Let's see whose worldview comports with that. I right. believe in God. I believe mathematics is, you know, consistent over time. You believe mathematics is consistent over time, but you believe that the foundation of that is, is, uh, is what, right? <laughs> is, is what exactly right. So I think, I think if we were to have a longer conversation on this, Lucas, I think we'd probably have a lot more in common there. Uh, I would anticipate we'd find a little bit more. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll just add, I'm not like anti any specific apologetic methodology. Right. I'm, well, if I'm going to be anti anything, it's anti being solidified in a single apologetic methodology because I think the uh, when I engage with people, I can give the same exact argument in the same exact way or the same exact line of questioning in the same exact way to 10 different people and I might get 10 completely different responses. And that's part of where my, my approach is, I need to just kind of feel out who I'm talking to and what makes the most sense, how does their mind work and how you know, what, what can I do to most effectively interact with them? Some people, it yeah. might be just evidence, data, you know, listing out the finely tuned constants and quantities of the universe. That might do it for some people. Um, for other people, probably not. Right. So we've got to, we've got to begin to bring things to a close here. Um, what, <laughs> the worst the, part of any conversation. That's right. That's right. I know. Now everyone's <laughs> going to tune out because I said that. But don't don't um, don't stop listening yet because uh, Lucas, one of the things I know about you, you're not only um, you're not only uh, a proficient in the physical sciences, but you're a man who loves the Lord. You're a preacher. You're a teacher at church. Um, how? What would be one takeaway? that you'd want our non-believing, non-Christian listeners to know about, about God, how they can get right with God. You know, let's say someone's listening and they're like, man, this is, this has been great, but we don't want them to leave without hearing the good news of Jesus. Would, would you want to, you want to lay that out? Where, what's your end game in terms of where do you want <laughs> people to get here? Well, I thought we were just talking about science and God in this conversation. Now you're asking me to lead an altar call of sorts. Let's go. Um, I, I guess for me, my mind was opened when I took my faith seriously, when I actually understood what, you know, who God was, what he did, you know, Jesus dying on the cross, rising from the dead. I now have access to eternal life. Some people think, oh, well, religion is just this, you know, you, you believe in it because you, you don't, you know, you can't deal with the facts of reality. But to me, that opened up another, another realm of reality. More, I, there's so much more for me to learn than I ever thought possible when I was just stuck on this little, this little blue dot, if you will. Life has a lot more meaning. And I, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess that, that's, that, that's one of the best reasons to, to be a Christian it's Christianity is true. Jesus did rise from the dead and we didn't have a historical discussion about that, but yeah. I was in my studies that led me there. And I was surprised to find just how great historical evidence there is for that. And I guess for those who are not believers, but they're looking for anything, I, I think there's this caricature that Christians are afraid to look at the data, are afraid to look at the evidence and follow the evidence where it leads. 
I think a lot of people get so wrapped up in their skepticism that they're afraid to to actually come down on something, that they're afraid to actually reach a, you know, affirm something. And we right. don't need to be afraid of knowledge. We don't need to be afraid of understanding. And so if we seek knowledge and we seek understanding, we are seeking God because God is the one who gives us knowledge and understanding. Love it. <laughs> Lucas, tell us about catalyzing faith and when's yes. that going to get started so we can start enjoying those videos and, and you don't have anything going <laughs> yet. Do you, has it launched officially? Not so, so not officially. If you act, so if you go on YouTube and you look up catalyzing faith, um, actually if you go on YouTube and Twitter, and Facebook, you can find it, right? The Facebook page has nothing up there because okay. I haven't I haven't officially launched it yet. But YouTube, I have one video, the talk I gave, Truth and Lies on Science and Faith. That that is that is posted on the the YouTube channel for Catalyzing Faith, and the the Twitter feed is is, is live, um, so you can find it if you want to start following and subscribing already. I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, it sh should be launching imminently. I have been dealing with some crazy technological issues, mainly I not being prepared technologically to handle this sort of thing. Um, but this month is is my goal. My goal is beginning of the month. That did not that did not come to be. So right away, <laughs> I'm, awesome. I'm going to start working on that now. That's that's fantastic. Well, everybody, go over to YouTube, subscribe to the channel, Catalyzing Faith because you know it's gonna be good. And uh, Lucas, I'm looking forward to referring a lot of people to your channel. I appreciate and it. Definitely, definitely. I mean, this is, this is, I hope you get a lot of followers because, um, you know, and go ahead. I'm just gonna throw this out there. I do talk about the flat earth in that talk. So okay. To, to you know, entice All some right. of the, some of the, who, yeah. the people who are intrigued by that. That is, that is one of those, that, that is included in that talk. Throwing a little red meat out there for some people. Of course. That's good, man. All right. Um, well, go check out Catalyzing Faith. We're looking forward to the content Lucas is going to be putting out there. To connect with the Think Institute, simply go to thethink.institute. You can follow us on all the social medias, including Facebook and Instagram. We are at the Think Institute on Twitter, at ThinkInst, at JSThinks on Parlor and ThinkSpot. And uh, if you haven't done so yet, subscribe wherever you're watching this right now, like the page on Facebook, subscribe to the YouTube channel. And if you're listening on the podcast, go ahead and do us a favor, help us get the word out. Leave us an honest five-star rating and review. I have appreciated most of the reviews that we've gotten. There, there have been some salty atheists who have left some not so friendly <laughs> reviews, but that's okay because uh, you know what? That means we're getting through to the people who really need to hear this stuff. Also, if you want to book me to come and speak at your church about the Christian worldview, evangelism, or apologetics, you can do that through the Think Institute website or simply shoot us an email at thethink.institute at gmail.com. And you know what? This is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the road of your spiritual journey. Of course, I want to thank again my guest, Lucas Giolis. And that is all we have for you today. So until next time, I hope it made you think.